Yeah, I thought Atticus was going to pull that on top of him. But then I was over there with that hymnal, and he was trying to squash my thumb on that thing. But uh, it's fun. I, what got me was you guys couldn't see, but he was staring at Tom's. <laughs> I know Thomas was trying not to look that way, so it could be stay serious. Tonight, we've been looking at characters in the Scripture who are often forgotten. But yet, they're not forgotten by God. They're remembered clearly by Him. And tonight, we're going to look at one of the kings. You know, when we think about the kings, you, you uh, well, a simple way to tell about their importance is how much ink is given to them in the Scriptures. And, of course, King David comes to mind, a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon, the wisest man in the world. And we have an evil king, King Ahab. He and his wife Jezebel, who really ran the show in God's land. But the king tonight, although he is the fourth king mentioned the most, is not as well known. His name is Hezekiah. And there's actually a lot that we can learn from the life of Hezekiah. Uh, in his account, there are questions dealt with, such as how to pray when you're terrified and everyone around you is panicking. How to live for God when it makes little sense. How to change a legacy of unfaithfulness modeled by an ungodly father. So there's a lot to learn from his life. And I, I want to start. We're going to be looking. Uh, there are actually several places. In 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And there's even one of his poems. That is recorded in the prophet Isaiah. But for our scripture reading to stand up this morning. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. And I want to read the first seven verses. So I'll ask when you find that. If you'll stand in God's honor. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the account of this great man, Lord. How you used him as your servant in turning the hearts of a nation back to you. Uh, Father, teach us from your word tonight as we take the remainder of our time together 
to examine this king's life, the life of Hezekiah. Just lead us, Master. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, when you think about a 25-year-old king who lived in a palace, was probably never told no, um, had wealth beyond measure in anything that you could dream of, it's hard to imagine a young man like this turning away from what feels good, (laughs) from the flesh, and having a heart for the living God. And yet, that is exactly what we learn about in this story of this great king. And I want to look at just several obvious lessons from his account. The first is that the absence of a godly father does not eliminate the possibility of a godly son. It is wonderful to have a heritage that is godly. But the Lord can speak to us no matter what our background is. No matter what our family was like. I think of Timothy. Remember Timothy, Paul's son in the faith. And we're told about his mother Eunice. We're told about his grandmother, Lois, and how Timothy learned from their example. But what we do not hear about is his father. Obviously, an unbelieving Greek, he didn't go to the temple. He wasn't a part of church. He had no godly interest to model for his son. And yet, Timothy became a Man who loved the Lord with all of his heart. Reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7.14. Where he admonishes the wives of unbelieving husbands. Who are living in Corinth. Not to abandon their families. But to stay with it. Becoming in that household. A holy and sanctifying influence. Although there's not a father. That leads the way in the Lord. People may have whispered. In the synagogue, Timothy doesn't have a chance. His dad's not here. He's he's not in the holy place when we gather. He cares nothing about God. How, How can this young guy ever amount to anything? How can he ever have a heart for God when he has a dad who doesn't care anything about the Lord, who doesn't fear him at all? And yet we know that the truth is that Timothy became a great man of God. Who loved the Lord with all his heart. And he was a a wonderful encouragement to the Apostle Paul. And I didn't grow up in a godly home myself. I I love my parents. And um, I I feel blessed uh, that they were a part of my life. But as far as growing up, going to church. As far as growing up, hearing anything about the Lord. I became a Christian as a teenager in a youth group. It was the influence of the other youth, uh, my peers, that had such a great impact upon me. And, uh, you know, as the years went by, I would talk with my parents. They wouldn't keep me from going to church. They were supportive, but I didn't really sense there was a heart for God. And, And I may not be the only one here, even in our group, maybe 
you didn't grow up in a godly home. But that does not preclude you from becoming a person who has a deep heart for God. By the way, the main preacher, prophet of that day was Isaiah. He was the one that the people went to hear. He was the one who was the mouthpiece of God. But yet I imagine that um, Hezekiah's dad, when he did speak about Isaiah, it was probably negative. But that guy just shut up. All he can do is criticize. All he can do is say bad stuff about me and about this kingdom. Because Hezekiah's dad did not have a heart for God. So there's no evidence of anyone directly to cheer him on. His dad wasn't there to be that encouragement and that spiritual guide that he needed. And yet, in spite of all of that, I love it as we read here in verse 3. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And for Hezekiah, it wasn't just a bunch of religious talk. I love it. I think it was Peter Lord uh, upon the church that he pastored. Um, They had etched into the foundation of that church. They said... um, Everything we do for the Lord is what lasts. Everything else is just religious talk. That's close. It's not exact. But the point is, you know, it's one thing for us to love Him with our lips. And we are to love Him with our lips. But it's not supposed to stop there. We are to love Him with our lives. And as we look through the Scriptures, we see that He did. In verse 4, we're told He removed the high places... (laughs) He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. And he did something, it's very interesting here, that his predecessors did not do. For um, historically, as you look through here, up to 700 years, they left this bronze snake that Moses had made. And it had actually become an idol that they would burn incense to. Numbers 22, if you go back to that, it gives us that account. um, Very interesting account of this bronze snake. It tells us in in that um, account that the people grumbled and they complained and they did not listen to the Lord. And as a result of that... uh, Numbers 21, I said 22. As a result of that, the Lord sent a plague of snakes, venomous snakes. Verse 6 of Numbers 21, it says, and that they bit the people and many died. I can imagine there was pandemonium. Uh, Verse 7, it says, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So the people prayed. So the, Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. In the Gospels, 
Jesus himself speaks about this account in John chapter 3 verse 14 as he says that that was a foreshadow of his ministry, a foreshadow of the cross, that when Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross to look to him with belief was salvation. It was to live. As they looked upon that serpent, there was life. And Jesus, of course, was saying to look upon me, upon that cross, when I die and to receive that gift that was fulfilled at the cross. That's life. You know, and I'm sure that he had some opposition. I'm sure that the incense makers and those who prepared other trinkets for the idolatry were not happy with him. I'm sure the religious leaders that uh, probably made some money off of that idolatry were not happy with him. And, you know, we're just tended to want to worship things that we can see. We're told that God is spirit and truth and we're to worship him in spirit and truth, that he's spirit. But yet we it's so easy to make a shrine out of something we see. I, I think that's why it says in the scripture they didn't know where Moses was buried because sure enough, they would take his graveside and turn it into some place they could make some money. Come and see the great Moses where he's buried. And sure enough, if we knew the exact spot where Jesus Christ, where, where he hung up on that cross, they would be trying to make money on that exact same spot as well. And it would probably become a place of idolatry that would occur. I want you to notice in verse 5, it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. The word trusted there literally means he placed his full weight upon. And what he was literally saying was Hezekiah placed the full weight of everything he knew and everything he was upon the foundation of the Lord God. One commentator expressed it this way. He knew so little about God compared to what we know about God, but he leaned entirely on him even though he knew so little. We leaned so little on him. When we know so much. He was so alone. And yet he was not alone. As he placed the full weight of his faith. Upon God. He leaned upon him fully. Just like you're holding on. To a. Any shred of. Help that you can find in a dangerous situation. Thankful for a life preserver when you're in the middle of a, a, a rushing, raging river. Any place of safety. In Second Chronicles 29 through 31, we see evidence of his faith and the work that he completed. And I'm just going to kind of rush through. Some of this and just mention 29 through 31. I'm obviously not going to try to read all three chapters. But just make some comments of how he reformed and brought renewal through putting actions to his word. Of we're going to follow the Lord and I'm going to lead as a king. In chapter 29 he opens the chapter talking about reopening the doors of the temple which his father had closed. There would be a place to come and to gather and to worship the Lord God. That place had been closed. It had been effectively 
put out of service, but he reopened it. And he called back the priests and the Levites to establish the system of approaching God. He reinstituted and prescribed the worship of Yahweh and the sin offerings in the chapter 29. As you come to the end of that chapter, it speaks about those offerings. And, and then he celebrated the national Passover feast that had been disregarded because of the rule of his father. Chapter 30, we discover that he sends out letters inviting all the divided tribes of Israel to come and Judah as well to come and celebrate together the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. And remember when the death angel passed over God's people because they had obeyed God and taken the blood of the lamb and placed it on a doorpost. In chapter 31, it it shows him destroying all the false temples and all the false idols and restoring the law of Moses and the worship of God among God's people. And then you come to chapter 31, verse 20. I want to read verses 20 and 21. It says, This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God in everything he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly, and so he prospered. So, how does the Lord God bless a guy like this? Think about this guy. This is a guy who everything was falling apart in the nation spiritually. There was no focus upon the Lord God. They had drifted. They had lost their way. You would think, God will bless this guy. As we'd say where I grew up, he's going to bless his socks off. He's going to receive all kinds of of goodies from God because of his faithfulness. Well, I want you to look at the next chapter and see how that blessing is carried out. Chapter 32, verse 1, it says, After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer him them for himself. What? Man, this guy loves God. Shouldn't he get a break? He shouldn't be invaded by this evil king, this conqueror with vicious armies. What kind of gratitude is that from God? And yet, that is what he faced. So essentially what we learn is trusting God in times of trouble does not eliminate the possibility of greater trouble. And greater trouble does not mean God's not there. Or that He does not have a plan. Or that He doesn't love you. Or that He's not at work. Walking with God doesn't guarantee an easier walk. But it does guarantee that He will walk with you. Look at the boasting of this evil king. Starting at verse 10 here. We read about his message to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all the people. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, The Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria. He's misleading you. 
to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Don't you know that I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? And then notice verse 16 says, Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. Wow. You think about Hezekiah. He's been so faithful to God. And, 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 and he could think, man, I'm stuck in the middle of it. But he was actually in the middle of the miraculous. Sometimes we think, man, I'm stuck in the middle of it. There's no hope. There's no way out of this situation. But really, you're just in a place where God can rescue you. You're in a place where God can ultimately deliver you. Matter of fact, you come to verse 20. We find out that in this great kingdom, there's all this fear. I'm sure that people are discouraged. They feel defeated. And so what does Hezekiah do? Well, he prays. And we find that he doesn't have a a large contingent for a prayer meeting. It's basically he and one other guy, the prophet Isaiah. Verse 20, it says, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out to God in heaven about this. Now, this is one of those scenes, it would be fun to watch. Now, there's a couple of times in the Bible, it's like, man, I'd love to be able to just, you know, I don't want to stir up or, you know, cause dissension. I could just kind of watch from a corner and, and not be detected. This would be a good one. (laughs) Here he is, Hezekiah and Isaiah, praying together. It is so easy when there is difficulty um, to cry out to everybody but God. I admit I do this. Something bad happens. Often my first thought is, who can I call and unload on? I have this big problem and I need to call somebody. I confess to you, I'm not proud of it, but often the first place I want to run is not God, somebody else. It's beautiful here. We don't see Hezekiah, you know, running around trying to get all this counsel from other people and, and you know, unloading and complaining. And what's he do? He, he goes with Isaiah and, and they take with them the complaint of this Assyrian king who has made these bold threats. And and I love what it says here uh, as we read what happened. It says um, that they cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel. I think it's beautiful here that they spread that letter out. To cry out 
before the Lord. To, to minister in the miraculous. I love it in uh, the scriptures as we read about how God would, how he would work and how he would, how he would save through um, the, the scriptures as we see about how he moves in the suffering and how he takes care of them. I want you to look at his prayer uh, that's recorded for us that he lifts before the Lord um, that we find in Second Kings chapter 19. Let's turn back to Second Kings 19 as we read the account of that prayer. I love it. It tells us that Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and he read it. He read the threats. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Isn't that a great picture? He takes these evil words and threats of the king and he just spreads it out before the Lord. Then he gets to business. Um, it says... Uh, they went up to the temple, Lord, spread it out before him, and Hezekiah prayed, O oh God of Israel, Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Give ear, O oh Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O oh Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It's true, O Lord, that the Syrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may... Well, may what? What does he what does he say ultimately? He says, So that others may know that I'm king here, I've got a job to do, that my life may settle down and get back to normal after all I have served you and loved you and I've proved my worth to you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, So that all kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O oh Lord, are God. The emphasis is not merely upon his pain. It's upon God's reputation and upon his glory. So, so it's a good question. Why, why do we pray as he comes and he pours out before the Lord? When we have our requests, when we are broken and we need to come before God, it is important why we pray just as it is important what we pray. What is our motivation when we come? What calls us before the Lord to come and to pray? What what are we praying for? Is it merely for our kingdom to be lifted up and to be continued and to be expanded? Or is it about God's kingdom being glorified and expanded? To why do we pray? Why do we pray? The tough times certainly come as we walk with God. Chuck Swindoll uh, has a great illustration of this in one of his books 
in a chapter entitled Tension in the Tank. And he uses the example of the codfish industry in the northeastern United States. And there are people that love the codfish. The trouble is, uh, all over the nation they're loved, is how to transport them to other areas of the nation outside of the northeastern United States. And they had to experiment to find a way to be able to transport the codfish. First they tried to freeze the codfish uh, and, and ship it, but that took away much of the flavor. That didn't work. So then they came up with another plan. They would ship the codfish in containers of salt water. But then when they arrived, they'd lost much of their flavor. That also didn't work. And uh, it lost its flavor and it would actually become mushy and soft and lose its texture. Finally, some creative soul came up with a solution. How to transport the codfish so that the codfish would retain its flavor and its texture. And here's what they did. They placed the codfish in large tanks of water along with their most irritating enemy, the catfish. (laughs) And so for the whole transportation, this catfish, the enemy, would chase the codfish. And sometimes it would be all across the country to the westernmost destination. And those ornery catfish would be chasing the cod all over the tank. But when they arrived, they were fresh with flavor and texture because they had been on the run the whole time. Swindoll applies a discovery to the writing. He says, first of all, can you name some catfish that are swimming in your tank? Catfish that are chasing you around to keep you close to God. And to keep you fresh in your faith. Catfish that drive you to your knees several times a week. Every church family seems to have a catfish or two as well. That happens too. Why? To keep the cod from getting soft and tasteless. And to keep us influential for the kingdom of God. He goes on, uh, Swindoll writes, Just think, it's that tension in the tank that helps the image of Christ emerge with the right attitude. We can learn how to keep from resenting them as intruders as the chase continues. To do so, we'll need to put an end to pity parties and wine clubs and gripe gatherings. When we do, it's nothing short of remarkable how closely the chase begins to resemble the race. And one more truth. Prayer is not a quick transaction. It's a close interaction. Sometimes when we go to the Lord in prayer, we have a list, a completed itinerary for the Lord, what we want Him to do, and a preference of when we would like to see Him do it. And, uh, you know, we will have that all figured out. But that's not the way the Lord works. Uh, I have uh, discovered the world of Amazon Prime and ordering stuff through Amazon Prime. It's great because you order stuff and you get two-day shipping. Uh, We went in half and half with Daniel, so we can enjoy that and and to be able to order it. And you have those choices in some orders where you can wait five or seven days if it doesn't have Prime, or you can pay a little more, and you can get that order shipped to you quicker. Sometimes we feel that way in prayer. It's like, oh, Lord, you know... 
for this, I can wait five or seven days before you answer it. It's okay. But, but I got some stuff. It's pretty heavy. And you know what, Lord? I am dedicated. I mean, after all, I'm here on Sunday night at church. I think that's some pretty high praise, you know. I mean, you can just ship this request out and answer it overnight. Because of my faithfulness to you. I mean, that should count for some big points. <laughs> George MacDonald wrote these perceptive words about the way we often pray. He says, what if the main object in God's idea of prayer is the supplying of our great and endless need of himself. Hunger may drive the runaway child home, and he may or may not be fed at once, but he needs his parents more than his dinner. Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other needs, and prayer is the beginning of that need. As we look at Hezekiah, and as we look at his life, faithfulness to God isn't inherited. It's not passed down from father to son. It's captured, it's resolved one person at a time. As we encounter the living God, as we meet Him, and as He transforms us, we're called in the middle of the miraculous. In a walk with God that begins when we place our trust in Him and He transforms us by the power of God and there's a walk with Him until that time we enter eternity. Pass through that portal called death. When everyone else panics, we as children of God know that we can pray. Whatever the situation is, we can spread it out before the Lord. He's already at work shipping you a response. When it arrives, well, that's up to him. And more than likely, you can be assured there might be a catfish in part of the answer that he brings. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for Hezekiah and for his life. Father, here is a man who didn't grow up with a family that had a heart for you. But you got his heart, Lord. You revealed yourself to him and he was transformed. He had a heart for you and he wanted his community, his kingdom to have a heart for you. And I'm sure there were some critics and there were some enemies that did not want this transformation of the land to follow you. But Father, you used this king, this man, Lord, to love you, to set the pace, to be the example. And Father, it looks at first glance that his reward was not what we would expect. It was more suffering and pain. This time, instead of from the inside, it was from the outside. But, Father, you gloriously saved the day. Father, as we go down through the account, we read that although it looks like they were trapped, that there was no way out. You, in the middle of the night, sent 185,000 Assyrian warriors to their death by your angels, Lord. You saved the day. And Hezekiah didn't send military forces you save the day, Lord. Totally unexpected. And that's how you are, God.
You and your power can work in ways that we don't expect. Our call is to trust you, to follow you, even when we may not understand. And I just pray, Lord, tonight as we've looked at the account of Hezekiah, you know where we are and you know what we are facing. You know the catfish in the tank that we swim in, Lord. And we just pray for your deliverance, Father, that you would rescue and that your name would be exalted as a part of that rescue effort, Lord. We thank you for an opportunity to worship you tonight. And I pray as we stand and sing, Father, my hope is that you've spoken to our hearts and that we would just say yes to whatever you want of us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.